Good morning, everyone. All right, one second as I get in my computer. So I want to provide a little context before we begin. So we're in Mark chapter 2. We just completed Mark chapter 1. And so what we heard the last several weeks was a number of events. John the Baptist in the wilderness. We saw Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness. Uh, He came on the scene saying, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. We'll draw on some more of that theme as well as we continue today. Uh, In that chapter one, we heard Jesus call his disciples, and he went around healing. He cast out demons and was healing a ton of people in the town of Capernaum. Interestingly, he left Capernaum last week, and we saw out in the wilderness somewhere he had healed a leper. And that kind of brings us to today. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. If you have Bibles, you can start turning there. Jesus is coming back to Capernaum now. And as you turn there, I just want to pray for us as we get into the reading for the day. Lord, help us to hear what you have to say in your word today. We know you have important things. Nothing you've spoken comes back void, and we ask this in Jesus' name. So we'll read 12 verses, if we can go there. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. He said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never saw anything like this. So this is God's word. Let's just reflect on that. So what stands out to you all in that reading? I'll start with a few general observations. For me, of course, the paralytic man being carried in um, by his four friends. I have that scene in my head. And if it were me dropping a man down through a roof, I just think I would have fumbled it. So they were pretty, they had a, a lot of finesse. The healing itself, of course, is amazing. What must it have felt like for that man who's been paralyzed for so long to be healed and walk out of there? And for all the people and the friends to see it happen, 
what they had hoped for in bringing him to Jesus actually fulfilled. It's incredible. Furthermore, what stands out to me is Jesus forgiving this man's sins. It's interesting that he does this first and heals the man secondarily as proof to the questioning Pharisees saying that they may know that he can do this and has the authority to do so. Does anything else kind of stand out to you all? A few other observations. Why is Jesus calling himself the son of man in this uh, context? Also, are the Pharisees correct in thinking that only God can forgive sins? And if so, why is Jesus surprised that they would then question those things in their hearts? So those general questions and observations we're going to unpack. We're going to go to some Old Testament prophecies, uh, exploring the nature of the prophetic word and why God provides proofs like prophecy and like healing. We're also going to discuss the nature of sin and forgiveness, since it features so prominently here, and then conclude on the topic of faith, generally speaking, and how that brings glory to God. So this is a tall task. Wish me luck as we get into the heart of the sermon today. So upon reflection, this moment in Jesus' ministry I find it to be very significant. If you're just reading in context, it seems like anything else Jesus was doing. In your Bibles, it's titled, Jesus Heals the Paralytic. But as we've been reading in Mark, Jesus had been healing people everywhere he'd went. He'd been doing miracles already by this point. And as I reflected on the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are three gospels that kind of parallel the same set of events to different degrees. In all of them, this is the first mention of Jesus forgiving someone's sins. This was two chapters into Mark, five chapters into Luke, and nine chapters into Matthew. So that element, Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven, is what I find to be especially significant. The significance And why Jesus waited to this point in his ministry, I think has to do a lot with what he was revealing by that statement. Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus was in the process of revealing aspects of who he is. And this one, as we can see from the leaders of the Pharisees, uh, started to carry implications about Jesus's identity that was critical for people to begin understanding. And so why was it a big deal Well, the Pharisees said it plainly because they understood. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so this notion that Jesus comes on the scene, starts using titles like Son of Man and forgiving sins. It's quite the uh, order for someone to accept. So the, the people of his day How can they accept something like this? I don't believe anything any random person says to me on the streets, hopefully. (laughs) Furthermore, Jesus is from Nazareth, which is like Ohio in our context. (laughs) Someone comes randomly through a roof and he's forgiving sins. The Pharisees might be thinking, someone comes through my roof, I'm not forgiving his sins. So, 
who does he think he is? God? More like a lunatic and blasphemer. The Pharisees and the people of their day had expectations of a coming Messiah. That much is clear. But the leaders had different expectations about what this Messiah would be like. They expected him to perhaps help them overthrow the Roman occupation, to be a man that could unite Israel and, and so that they could get on, on task with God's purposes. We'll get into some of why that might be their expectation. But then Jesus is on the scene, and he's not lining up with what they expected. For one, as he's preaching everywhere he goes, he tends to be undermining the righteousness the Pharisees thought that they possessed. Furthermore, he just seems to be doing things you wouldn't expect, like forgiving sins of random people, not accordance with the proceed process in uh, the law that they had followed henceforth. So this was troubling for Jesus to be demonstrating real authority, yet undermining them and not meeting their expectation. Jesus, on the other hand, seemed to think that they should have known, that they should have been expecting him. He says, why do you question these things in your heart? What is easier? He says, I think we have a scripture just calling back to this again in Mark 2. He said, why do you question these things in your heart? What is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise. So Jesus seemed to be thinking they should know that there's something special about what's going on here. He demonstrated this, one, through the sign and the miracle itself, but he also uh, is using the authority of Scripture to prove his point. And he's doing this by calling himself the Son of Man. What is the Son of Man title? It's not come up before in our readings of Mark, so I want to get into it here today. Jesus uses this title, I've learned, 81 times throughout the four Gospels. Uh, The most prominent example, though, is whenever he is being uh, interrogated by the high priest before his eventual crucifixion. This is in Matthew 24. We'll read that. It says, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This statement from Jesus in front of all of the leaders right up at the crescendo of his whole ministry. It caused them to freak out because he wasn't saying something arbitrary. He was quoting Daniel, and they knew it. So I'd like us to read this portion of Daniel as well to see the alignment. This is from Daniel chapter 7. It says, 500 years before Christ ever walked the earth or more, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So when Jesus is claiming this for himself, 
he seems to be implying, you know that one you're expecting that's going to rule forever? That's me. And based on everything they've witnessed of Jesus, they could not accept that. Furthermore, Jesus is saying, you should be expecting me. That prophecy from Daniel is just kind of describing the nature of, of the Messiah. It doesn't say anything about timing. But as we read in Mark chapter 1, Jesus came on the scene saying, the time is fulfilled. Some of the interpretations I've, I've read, it seems that a lot in, in Mark, Daniel seems to be drawing from the prophecies of Daniel once again. And this aspect of time being fulfilled is also a quote from one of Daniel's next prophecies in Daniel chapter 9. So if, if at all we can think that there's good evidence from over 500 years before Jesus lived that something profound about the nature of the Messiah receiving glory and that the timing is there, I think we should explore that. Additionally, I was pretty moved by Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 that ties in pretty nicely with the overarching themes that we've been hitting on. So, again, I'm going to take us to the Old Testament and we'll read Daniel chapter 9, starting with Daniel's prayer. So we read, It says that Daniel understood that Israel's captivity in Babylon was nearing its prophetic end. Daniel then turned to the Lord in sackcloth and ashes, confessing that they all had sinned against God and done wrong, turning aside from his commands. He stated, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. All Israel has transgressed, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. And the Lord is righteous in all that the works that he has done, meaning the judgment that he brought upon them. And then it continues, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So we're going to pause and we'll hear God's answer to Daniel. But I think it's apparent from this prayer that Daniel's pleas for mercy are not based on the people's uh, own, own righteousness or their ability to do something different than what they had been doing for 500, 1,000 years before. He's calling out to God for mercy based on God's righteousness. The next slide, we hear God's immediate answer. Again, in Mark and in Daniel, there's a lot of immediate action. After all this time in captivity, God answers 
uh, Daniel immediately by sending the angel Gabriel. He brings an answer. While Daniel was yet in prayer, God had said to Daniel, O Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I'll pause again. Uh, Just to be Daniel after everything he'd endured, uh, that prayer, and to get a messenger from God that tells him, you are greatly loved. That must have been amazing. And now I think we're ready. Just let's hear this timing aspect of Jesus's ministry coming on the scenes. And could it have been known based on Daniel's prophecies? If we're ready, we'll read that portion as well. Gabriel said to Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 weeks to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word, to restore and build Jerusalem. To the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with square and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Wow. So what in the world does all that mean, <laughs> right? Um, admittedly, this whole message is, is somewhat veiled, but I want to help us understand it. Many people have drawn insight that, that this is one of God's most specific prophecies uh, from the Old Testament. So the message was, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. It turns out that the Hebrew people had a practice similarly to the way we use the word decade, as representing 10 years. And so a week in their context was referencing a set of seven years. So all this prophecy wasn't saying 70 weeks, a year and a half from now, it's all fulfilled in Daniel's time. But 70 weeks is referring to seven times seven, which, or 70 times seven, which is equal to 490 years. It also went on to say, you don't start this clock until the decree to rebuild Jerusalem comes. This happened 80 years after Daniel lived. It's one of the most well-known events in history from Artaxerxes, king of the region at the time telling the Jewish people that they can return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And we read 
this prophecy divided in three sections. It totaled 69 weeks specifically until an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. This anointed one, looking back, we can easily see is Jesus being cut off in his crucifixion and and not having the faith of the nation um, at that time, given that his people rejected him. And it's interesting because exactly uh, 483 years, which is that 69 weeks, exactly 173,880 days from that event in history is when Jesus entered Jerusalem in his Passion Week. So for me, that edifies my faith greatly. Also, the, the term 490 years in this whole period is limiting for the whole expectation of any Jewish Messiah coming at all. At the time of the people of Jesus' day, there was expectation that Jesus, there was a Messiah-type figure coming because of the expiration date of, of that period ending. And so Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled, and I am here. But the nature of his ministry, nonetheless, is still veiled. It's hard to say that they could have understood that the anointed one being cut off would have meant the Messiah dying for the sins of the world. Additionally, if we're thinking about the, um, the statement there, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. The people of the day might have thought that the Messiah was coming to literally put an end to sin, meaning I'm going to kill all the sinners in, in the world at that time. But then Jesus is on the scene doing the opposite, forgiving sinners. And so this is not jiving with the expectations that the leaders of the day had in his coming. But going back to Daniel just once more, Daniel's prayer was for God's mercy. We've been in captivity in Babylon. Where do we turn? Immediately God brought him an answer, and that answer was not Daniel. I've heard that you're ready. You're going to go back to Jerusalem, and you're all just going to start living right. But no, his answer was, in 490 years, the solution will be here. The Messiah is coming. It's the same answer God always gives throughout the Old Testament that I hear your prayer for mercy and the solution is coming. Let's not take this whole fulfilled prophecy for granted either. For Jesus in this prophecy of Mar- or in this uh, passage from Mark going to the next set of verses says which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So he's asking, it's, what's easier, to say or to do? It's certainly harder to do. One can say anything, just as one can predict anything about the future, but only God can bring the details about. For me, I find this to be very true. I work uh, in project management. I have a background in engineering. And I know exactly how hard it is to make a plan come together. Even when you have hundreds of people being paid to get to the same set of objectives and end state, it just never happens as you expect. 
And so compound that over thousands of years, and how unlikely is it that these prophecies from the Old Testament would come true, let alone to the day? But when God says the Messiah is coming in 173,880 days, he comes in 173,880 days. When Jesus says, rise, billions of cells start cooperating all at once, operating in harmony. These two impossibilities, nothing is too hard for God. So why does God do this? Why does he give some healings, some miracles, some prophecies about specific things? I believe that he does these things so that when they come to pass, we may believe, that we may throw our weight into him because they've proven to be true. For me, I I used to not be able to throw my weight into God putting my faith in him. I used to think, despite growing up in church, that Jesus just came out of nowhere. Jesus was a man walking the earth, doing some things, teaching, dies, and we're all supposed to acknowledge this, I guess. It didn't really make sense to me. I took it for granted, right, that Jesus was in the world. We sing, we worship, we remember his sacrifice, but why? Where did this all come from? I've, I went away from that idea that Jesus was something significant for a couple of decades, but eventually I did get the answers that I, I needed, and, and to my, del- excuse me, my delight, actually, I found a real person there waiting I discovered, as I explored the scriptures deeper, that Jesus wasn't a deus ex machina. A deus ex machina is a a really bad literary device that is tacked on at the end of a story that resolves the conflict for the protagonist. It comes out of nowhere, and everyone's just whisked away. It feels, in, in some ways, in how our culture presents Jesus, that, oh, there's just no expectation. He just shows up and is awesome and takes away our sins. But that would have been terrible writing from God, the author of history. (laughs) In fact, just like in Daniel and in every chapter, every book at least of the Bible, we know that there is images and prophecies pointing to God's work through Christ. And he does this for our benefit. He does this so that we might believe not just to perform a a cool party trick. He did it to provide evidence for the questioning Pharisees in this chapter of Mark. But I like the way he breaks it down for his disciples in the Gospel of John, which we'll put up on the screen. Jesus tells them that he's aware of his betrayal before he goes to the cross, and he tells them, I'm telling you that this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is wanting his disciples and wanting us to believe 
that I am he. And what is he saying? Same thing everyone thinks he's saying. He's saying, I am the Lord. And just to bring it home, Isaiah 43 ties in with this so well. So we're going to read another, another part from the Old Testament. It says in Isaiah 43, As the nations gather together and the peoples assemble, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I think he has got the point home clear there. This is the nature that Jesus is revealing. The nature that caused controversy as he started to reveal it. Forgiving sins. Fulfilling prophecy. Performing miracles. He's telling the world, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And this is huge. Just let it take hold. You see, I need to believe that Jesus is God. I can't believe that Jesus is some teacher for how I should live. Who else can promise to me that they have taken my sins away? That they have done the work? If I'm to abandon my context, which has me focused on self-actualization, achievement as a Western American boy, post-modern, post-enlightenment. That's my context. And my eyes are focused on me, typically. But God says that he's done it, really done it just as what he said in Daniel, that I've taken away sin, made an end to transgression, anointed the most holy. That is the gospel. The gospel, in a way, was preached to Daniel. And it's the best news in the world. And everyone needs it. Not just me in my context, nor the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. Based on all of this, God gives us that assurance. That is why Jesus can say to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Seems so trivial, right? He just drops in through the roof and his sins are forgiven. But that man had found what it had all been working toward God's promised Savior. It all worked up to him. And so naturally, Jesus was able to say, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
But just to make sure we all understand the significance of it, what even is sin? You can find a hundred different definitions in the Bible, perhaps, but I like the definition that is given in 1 John. 1 John being written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He says in John 3 that sin is transgression of the law. But as John continues writing, he kind of expands upon the definition in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, where he says that all unrighteousness is sin. For me, I, I think this is one of the most exhaustive definitions that there can be. Some ways when we define sin as specific acts, we think we can somehow get sin out of our life. But whenever we realize that all unrighteousness is sin... Who can claim that they claim that they are free from sin? And that's a, a challenging premise because the Bible also says that the wage of sin is death. And if we are condemned justly because of our sin, then what are we to do? But based on everything Jesus had done and taught the world, thankfully in the same verse, it says, despite this wage that we've earned, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if it still feels too cheap in that Jesus has erased sin, it's minimizing it. Or in our life day to day that if we hold on to that, sin is minimal. Not so fast. Because sin is the core problem of the entire Bible. And it's so not trivial that that is why God is responsible to forgive sins. God showed how not trivial it is throughout the Bible. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, he was willing to curse the entire world as fallen. Because of the sin in Noah's day, he was willing to judge it with a global flood. He was willing to throw down Sodom and Gomorrah. He was willing to give out the death penalty to transgressors of the law that he gave to Moses. And he was willing to send his people into exile and captivity because of their sin and disbelief. So sin is not trivial. But yet, it feels like it because Jesus takes it away so easily. The solution that God presented towards sin, in a way, has been the same the entire time of the Bible. We hear that wrathful element of God, and we think, if that's really how you feel, Lord, then what? make up your mind. Either forgive us or judge us, but enough of this in between. But really, God, we hear, is love, and we need to believe that, otherwise we're all screwed. But how do we make this all consistent? It seems to me that from the very first sin of humanity, God's presented a solution, a solution that's been consistent. He gave to Adam and Eve uh, animal hide for covering, and he promised them a seed coming that would crush the head of the serpent. In Israel's day, thousands of years later, 
he instituted animal sacrifice, blood offering, and a high priesthood that would mediate between God and man. So whether you're Adam and Eve, dealing with your sin through a covering and a hope of a promised seed, or you're Israel, having blood atonement and a mediating high priest, God's grace and mercy was there in face of God's judgment the entire time. These all pointed to things greater than themselves. They pointed in totality to the work of Jesus on the cross. In Revelation chapter 19, it states that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And all of these things God instituted for his people over time were prophetic. Even the acts and the symbols were prophetic, pointing to what Christ would fulfill. So sin, it is not trivial. God has a judgment against sin. But all the more, that is why Jesus had to go to the cross and can take it away because he's done it. Based on everything we've learned and talked about, I think we can conclude that the Pharisees were indeed right, that only God can forgive sins. Though they were right about that, they did not themselves understand God's mission, nor their need. Paul, the former persecutor of the church and Pharisee to the extreme, upon his conversion and understanding Jesus, he gave this explanation about what's going on there. In Romans 10, Paul said, For I bear witness to my fellow people that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God that Daniel asked for. We know it's Jesus. Jesus is God's righteousness manifest. He is the promised seed of the woman. He is the son of man. He's the son of man because he came in the flesh. And where Adam's sin brought about the fall, Jesus' righteousness brings salvation. The paralytic found it once again, and he was able to receive forgiveness of his sins. And I conclude that for a helpless people, God is just in justifying the ungodly by faith in him apart from works. Do you really believe that, you might ask? Yes. It's taken some effort for me to say yes to that, but woe to me if I do not. Rejecting God's grace makes me antichrist. The alternative is hatred. The children of, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, consider them. Abel offered the blood sacrifice that God desired and had been picturing, whereas Cain offered the fruit, the produce of the cursed ground. 
God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's. Then Cain proceeded to murder Abel, just as the Pharisees did Jesus. And so soberly, Jesus says, because this is the great salvation, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So let's not take what Jesus is offering and everything pointed to lightly. Let's not come as a thief attempting to come our own way to God. Instead, we enter straight through the door, straight through the narrow way, because Jesus is the door and the narrow way, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And we enter just by trusting in him, just like the, uh, the paralytic and the friends did. Jesus said, seeing their faith, that he forgave the man's sins. We'll wrap up, though, with just the last verse from Mark chapter 2, around verse 12. It says that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I mentioned in Luke they have the same story. In Luke, it says that the paralytic himself went home glorifying God, and that amazement seized the crowd, took over them. So all this ends in in God's glory. Jesus says to the paralytic, son, and based on his faith, he allows him to enter that tradition that's been expected and prophesied from long ago. And we'll just bring it home with Isaiah 43. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. These things are written so that we may believe, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Let's apply this. Let's be like that paralytic and the friends. We are casting ourselves on the hope of Jesus. In this life, we are somewhat in the in-between, almost like we're on this rope being dropped down to Christ. We haven't seen the outcome of everything hoped for and promised by God, But just as in time Jesus came, and just as the friends saw their friend walk out of there because they believed Jesus could do it, so too will we one day see the outcome of our faith, and Jesus is coming again.